Well, good morning. Uh, please, uh, please find uh, in your Bibles, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. One of the most tragic stories in the Bible is the one about uh, King David, who was a man after God's heart, and yet he plunged into adultery. He tried to cover it up with murder, had one of his most loyal soldiers killed, the husband of the woman with whom he committed adultery, Bathsheba. Uh, it was terrible, right? It's sad and it's tragic. And though God forgave him, David suffered the consequences of this for the rest of his life. It's easy to see, if you think about where we've been in First Thessalonians, last time we talked about holiness, and it's easy to see that David failed at holiness, uh, but it's also easy to see that he failed at love, which is the, the subject of, of our text today. In these two areas, holiness and loving others are really the two areas that Paul focuses on as he talks to Thessalonians and to us about how to live a life that is pleasing to God. So if you want to live to please God, and I hope you do, we cannot be negligent in either of these areas. We can't be indifferent, but we have to pursue each of these areas diligently. Last time we heard about holiness, a couple of weeks ago. Today we'll hear about loving each other. And that is really difficult for us at times. Some people are easier or more difficult to love than others. Maybe you know the poem, to dwell above with those we love. Oh, that will be glory. But here below with those we know, that's another story. So, uh, well, all right. So uh, the Thessalonians, though, were doing well at loving each other. But they had some areas to work on. That's what we'll talk about today. So remember in chapter 4, Paul is writing to them about living to please God. So I want us first to read the first two verses from chapter 4, because that kind of opens the section, and then we'll come to chapter 9. So First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you are living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So introducing this section, reminding them of this is what we did. This is what we taught you when we were with you. This is how you live pleasing to God. So he talks about holiness. And then in verse 9, he says, Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life might win the respect of outsiders, so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So let's draw some observations, some lessons about loving one another from these verses. First, we must pursue holiness in order to love others well. These two subjects of holiness and love they are closely connected. As with holiness, we saw the last time, this is the will of God, your sanctification, your holiness. It is the will of God that we love one another too. Now, that's not clear. That's, that is clear, not just from this passage, but also from, for example, Jesus' response when he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? His response, Matthew 22, Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about holiness. This means recognizing every area of our life is set apart for God, belongs to God. All of us belongs to Him. 
And this, as we saw, this applies, or Paul applied this specifically to sexual immorality. Holiness is more than this, but it's certainly not less. Today's text is about loving one another, and they go together. As we embrace the will of God, as we pursue holiness, our desires, our affections are ordered better. They are renewed, they are refined, they are clarified, and we experience greater freedom from the things that would hinder our love for others. And as with David, so it is with us, failure in one area is often a failure in the other. So to put this in the language of the great commandment, holiness and love, pursuing holiness is the great commandment, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. If you are pursuing holiness, you're loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of that comes the second commandment, to love others as yourself. They are, they are inseparable. Now, the second thing, second observation I would make is that we need instruction to love well. We saw this with holiness as well. We don't naturally know how to live to please God. So we need instruction to know how to love. We need instruction to know how to be holy. Um, and loving others does not come naturally to us. As Jesus said, you must, he, he says the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself that presupposes our radical self-love, our radical loyalty to our own well-being, our commitment. And he's saying, put others at that level. Show that same level of concern for their well-being as you do for your own. So we need instruction. We need to know how to do this. Now, God gives us love for each other. We'll see this in verse 9. He does this supernaturally. It is a work of grace in the heart. But we also need to know how, how to live this out in, in daily life. So Paul and Silas and Timothy knew this when they were in Thessalonica. They taught Thessalonians this. I'm sure they used the scriptures as they did with everything else. So I want to take a couple of minutes and just look at a few scriptures about how the Bible instructs us in the love of God. Now, this might be really familiar to some of you. I hope it is. In case it's not, just bear with me because it's important and it's sweet and it's good. So first... The scriptures tell us about God's love. We would not go know about God's love if we did not have the scriptures, okay? So maybe Paul showed them Exodus 34, 6. This is really a key verse, right? Um, the Lord, and it says, he, the Lord, passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord. That's Yahweh, the four-letter name. The Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. This was like the ultimate self-revelation God had given to Moses at this time. And this is what he revealed about himself. Gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Maybe he used Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. Is that not amazing? It is. Now, there are a lot of other verses from the Old Testament. I don't understand people who say the Old Testament doesn't talk about God's love. That's just in the New Testament. The Old Testament is full. I agonized over just how much I wanted to say all this, and I'll, I'll move on from here. Because the New Testament goes even further. And Paul may have said to the Thessalonians something like what John wrote a few years later, because he's... We find this in the New Testament that God is not just loving. He is love. He, that is the essence of who he is. So 1 John 4, 8 says, Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. That is who he is. And by the way, this is a, a, a nice 
uh, just to take a little tangent, which I am prone to do, um, tangent toward the, our belief in the Trinity, God existing as, as one being in three persons. Because God is love, that means there must be someone who loves and someone who is loved. Because if there is just one, if there's no other person, then the only person God can love is himself. Well, that makes him an egotist. And he's self-centered. That's not who God is. When God shows his love for his son, he's saying of Jesus, look, here is my beloved son. And the son is saying, look, I'll show the world how much I love the father and give my life for my people. And so it's, it's beautiful. It's not egotistical. It's not self-centered. It's this glorious relationship. And he invites us into this. So love, that's who God is. Scriptures also show us the love of God in Christ. First John 4 9 and 10, just to continue through 1 John, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That is the depth of his love for us. It is astounding. If you have any sense of how terrible your sin is, what an affront it is to God, to know that the sacrifice has been made and the price has been paid, it, it is amazing. It is. So also the scriptures command us to love. We've already seen the great commandment to love God, to love neighbor. But then there is the command Jesus gave just before his sufferings began. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's Vitally important. It's important for each of us. It's important for all of us. It's important for us as a church. It's important in the church, for the world, for the nations. The scriptures also describe love as evidence of the new birth. First John 4, 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And I've already quoted verse 8, right? He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. So, God is love. To know him, the inevitable consequence is that you love. Your love, your affections are reordered and refined, and you, you become more loving. There are a lot, of other, a lot of more examples from Old and New Testaments, both scriptures full of instruction, and you and I need every bit of it. We need every command, every promise, every good and bad example. We need it all. That's why it's there. There's nothing extra in scripture. Everything that's there is something we need. Um, but all of this makes Paul's statement in verse 9 astounding. Because he says in verse 9, Now about your love for one another, we don't need to write you. <laughs> you actually don't need instruction. That doesn't mean they never needed instruction. Remember, Paul was there. They, they instructed them before. But he is in effect saying, Yeah, we need instruction in the love of God. But you have got it. It is evident God has worked in your heart. He has transformed you. He has put this deep within you. They didn't just know they ought to love. You know, sometimes I've had that feeling. It's like, yeah, I really ought to love that person. <laughs> like, Lord, I do not feel much love in this moment or this person. I need your love for them because I'm done, right? So, uh, and it's nobody in this room. I'm not really even thinking about anybody specific. So, you know, don't. Don't fear, little flock. Um, but that is something that God does when we come to Christ. He puts his love in our hearts. Now, I've told you before, I came to Christ as a university student. And 
ahead of that time, I was around Christians. I, you know, in preparing this, I was thinking about a particular event. And for some reason, I was with this small group of believers all evening, and I hated it. I thought they were weird. I thought they were the weirdest people I'd ever met. And it was incredibly awkward, and I literally could not wait for that evening to end. I think I must have been riding in the car. I just had no independence. I was miserable. I'm pretty sure I was a jerk most of the evening. You don't even look surprised that I, could, that I, that I have an evil twin, uh, but I do. Uh, he's, he follows me sometimes, sometimes goes ahead of me. Um, but you know, when I came to Christ, those weird, annoying people, sorry, those really weird, annoying people suddenly didn't seem so weird or their, their quirks, I don't know, I found just sort of endearing. I loved being around them. They fed my joy in Christ, my hunger for God. I thought, they're still as weird as they were, but I guess I'm weird now, you know, and that's okay. Thanks for the amen. I am weird. I know it. I confess. It's all right. I'll I'll own it. But I knew that it wasn't just that I felt I should love these people. I loved them. And I felt with them, as I feel with many of you, closer to people that I don't know as well from a different country, different ethnic background, closer to some of you than than I do maybe to my family in the States. Because of Christ. That's what he does. So it's no doubt, I have no doubt that Timothy went when he visited to check on the Thessalonians' faith. He saw that, saw they were, they were standing firm in their faith despite the persecution. But it seemed like Timothy was just amazed, blown away by the way they loved one another. And I think he brought word back to Paul. Paul is amazed. He just, amazement oozes from the way he says this, right? It's like, you have gotten it. God has put this in your heart. The you is emphatic. You yourselves have been taught by God. And I think Paul is expressing maybe a bit of surprise because remember, Acts 17, the Thessalonians weren't as noble as the Bereans, right? I mean, it doesn't seem like they had any trouble forming a mob, right? So these were not stellar, people of stellar character. They were not you know, overflowing with kindness. And yet, this is a remarkable transformation that's taken place. They love one another. They, they loved deeply. He says, you're taught by God. This, this tells us their love was not shallow, it was not superficial, it was not transactional, it was genuine, deep from the heart. They loved consistently. Verse 9 it says, you have been taught by God, but literally it is you are God taught. He uses a word that is used only here in the New Testament. But the idea is, is you, this is a present attitude of their hearts, a present experience, and it is ongoing. You are, you're showing this Day by day, God has taught you. You are God taught to love. God has done something supernatural in your hearts. And they did this consistently. They loved genuinely, he says in verse 10. In fact, you do love. He, he didn't just say, you know you ought to love people. He says, you love people. And they loved like family. They use, he says, you loved all of God's family. He uses family terms several times in these verses. The church is the family of God. And these relationships that we have with one another, they are everlasting. Okay? These will go on forever. We might have an ICP meeting in church sometime. I don't know. don't know how all of that will work. But these relationships as brother and sister in Christ, these will remain. They will remain forever. The Thessalonians might have lost family relationships with their suffering and persecution. This might be all they had. This might be what drove them together. 
But they found themselves in a new family, the family of God. And whatever your earthly family situation, single or married, uh, whole, broken or blended family, you are forever part of the family of God. This never ends. Never. There is, uh, it, it goes on forever. So rejoice in that. That is, that is what Paul commended them for. You are loving like family. And they love broadly. He says in verse 10, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Not just the people in their fellowship, not just the people in their community, not just the people in the synagogue, not just the people in their city, but throughout Macedonia, throughout that province. That is astounding. Without texting, without social media, (laughs) without phones, their love over a wide geographical area was evident. It's really amazing. Now, there's something else happening here that uh, we need to understand. See, Paul is always thinking biblically, okay? And that's a great example for us. We should also be thinking biblically. But when he says, you are taught by God, this is an allusion to a verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 54, 13, where it says, your children will be taught by God. Jesus quotes it in, in John chapter 6, and I have that on the slide, I think. Jesus says in John six forty five. It is written in the prophets, and they, all, they will all be taught by God. So he's quoting Isaiah. Everyone who has le- heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now Isaiah said this, looking forward to the restoration of God's people, to God's people returning home. But he had more than that in mind, as is typical. Jesus quotes it to point people to himself, because he is the way home to God for all of us. And then Paul uses it to declare not only for Jewish people, but Gentiles, Gentiles like the Thessalonians, Gentiles like you and like me, we receive this new covenant grace of God working deeply in our hearts to cause us to love one another when otherwise we would not. And this is what God wants of us at ICP. It is biblical. We should expect this of ourselves and pursue it in our hearts because it is biblical. And it is what God has done in our hearts. He has changed us and caused us to love and have a natural affection for one another and a desire for the well-being and the, the good progress in faith of one another. So we need instruction, but we have it. We also have the Lord's work in our hearts. Now, third observation is that we always have room for growth in love. Paul affirms their love, obviously, but he also urges them to grow. He wants them, as he says, um, to do so more and more. Okay, Um, In the original language, this is the exact phrase that he uses in verse 1 as he encourages them. He says, you're already doing this. You're already doing the things we taught you. We want you to excel. We want you to make progress. Do so more and more. Exact same phrase. So we can always grow in our ability to love And we'll have eternity to do that. We'll have eternity to grow in our experience and our understanding of the love of God and our capacity to love Him in return. Just like a a small child, when they inhale, their lungs are full of air. Okay, But it's not much air because their lungs are small, right? But then as they grow, their capacity to breathe, to take in air and out, grows. The same is true of love. When we we first come to Christ, we love God. We love the Lord with all our heart and yet... Our capacity to love grows the more we walk through life with Him. Uh, Fourth observation is this. One way that we love others well 
is by taking responsibility for our lives. Now, this just seems like a, a big curve in the road. <laughs> That's not what we expect, right? When we hear challenges to love one another, we're thinking, okay, be kind, be patient, open your homes, you know, meet needs, practical needs. All those things are true, but Paul doesn't go there. He's still talking about love, but he's giving us a different dimension of love, one that we don't often or may not naturally associate with love. And this may have been the precise area where the Thessalonians needed to grow. Maybe you and I do too. So let's look at this closely and see if this is an area where our love needs to grow. So let's look at these four phrases in verse 11. The first is to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. That's literally be ambitious to live quietly. Now that sounds inherently contradictory, right? Be ambitious to do less. <laughs> be, be ambitious to be quiet. You know, that's it's like, how do you do that? Well, the idea behind ambition is not really our, what we would call ambition. It's more like consider it honorable, consider it respectable, a good thing. This is something to pursue, to live quietly. But also understand living quietly doesn't mean living without speaking. So apologies to introverts and relaxed extroverts. It's not life without speaking. (laughs) Um, It is best understood, stated negatively, make it your ambition to not be an agitator. You You know agitators, right? They show up, they stir up trouble by their words, by their actions. Sometimes right, never in doubt, right? Just, um, just by their, you know, as I've said of myself, often joking, you know, never letting ignorance keep them out of a conversation. Um, agitators do that, but they do it in a way that stirs up trouble. The second thing he says is mind your own business. That, the idea is, it's not, that sounds, in, in, at least in English, that sounds a bit like, you know, go away. And that's not the point. It's, it's more like take care of your own affairs. That is, don't be a meddler. Don't be an agitator. Don't be a meddler. He's not telling us to be indifferent to each other's needs. He's not telling us that we don't come alongside each other, challenge each other, rebuke each other, ask probing questions. Love sometimes demands that we do that, that we, that we come alongside of brother or sister and ask what's going on, ask how they're doing, challenge and rebuke as is necessary. That's the demand of love in some situations. But what he is doing here is urging us to take responsibility for our lives, for being occupied with what God has given us to do, rather than meddling and interfering in affairs that are not our own, not our business. Paul calls people who don't do this busybodies in his second letter. They meddle, they stir up conflict, they stir up trouble. It's... uh, Makes me think of Romans 6, you know, where Paul says, uh, present the members of your body as, as instruments of righteousness to God. And I, sometimes, you know, I'll do that. I'll think, hey, okay, God, do you hear my eye, eyes? You know, help, help me see people like you see them. Here's you know, my mouth. Let me just say the things that are pleasing. Here's my nose. Keep it out of other people's business. You know, that's just how you offer the parts of your body to God. Um, doesn't always work. Sometimes I can't say God says no to that. I'll just say sometimes I forget what I ask. So... The third phrase here is work with your hands. And now Paul's not telling people who work in offices to quit and go do real work. He's not saying that manual work is better than another kind of work. The point is you work, you give yourself to whatever it is your responsibility to do. 
This may be a job. It might be a role. It might be a task. If whatever it is that you have from God, do that. Okay? Now, if you take all these together, it seems like the problem that he is addressing is that people were not working. Because they were not working, they had free time. So I have nothing to do. I'll just come do it with you. (laughs) And um, they were becoming meddlers and agitators. And because they weren't working, they had no income. They were not providing for their own needs. So now they are dependent upon the hospitality and generosity of, of others who were in fact working, were in fact providing for the needs, were doing what they should be doing. These are the ones that probably... is. Was the, the great expression of their love around Macedonia was probably either hospitality or generosity. That is, they were, they were helping people broadly and deeply. And yet, when people stopped working, start, starting trouble, and then being in need, they were hindering the church's ability to show love in this way. And so they're affecting the unity of the church. They're affecting the ability of the church to show love to one another, but also outwardly. But notice, okay, this is, Paul is not just browbeating them, saying, get to work, you bunch of slackers. He's saying, he he is putting this in the context of love. See, when you don't take responsibility for your life, you are not acting in love. You say, well, I'm not affecting anybody else. You are. You are. Our actions always affect somebody else. Loving others means, it means more than taking responsibility for your life, but it doesn't mean less. Okay. So we owe it to one another to do what God has given us to do, to focus on that, not to refuse to do that and instead cause trouble and hinder them. So I think that is why Paul mentions multiple times in both letters When he and Silas and Timothy were there, he talks about how hard they worked so as not to burden the Thessalonians. And and he commanded them to work. This comes up again in chapter 5. It comes up again in in the second letter where it seems to have gotten even worse between the, the writing of the two letters. So this was an issue in this church. Paul writes to address it. Now, now think back to David's story. Remember, we opened with this tragedy of, of David, man after God's heart, had done so many things so well, and yet he plunges into adultery and murder. The story opens with this, that instead of going out with his army into battle, as kings do, David sent his army into battle. He stayed home. He stayed at Jerusalem. And it was in his leisure moments with nothing to do that he saw Bathsheba and the rest is is tragic history leading to his adultery with her his arrangement to have her husband be killed in battle which amounted to murder Uh, all of these things led to he, he was not doing what he should have been doing which meant he started doing what he should not have been doing And he regretted this for the rest of his life. So hear this. This this is love. This is one way love is expressed. Now you may not love your work, but your work is an expression of love. Say, I don't really enjoy what I do. You know what? 
A lot of people don't. That's really not the point, okay? If it's what God has given you to do, do it with sincerity and diligence. Because there are a couple of positive benefits that come from this, positive consequences. One is that you win the respect of outsiders. In verse 12, he says, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders. So outsiders come across one professing believer who doesn't do what he should, and instead he's meddler, busybody, agitator, and he's in need. He's dependent in an unhealthy way. And an outsider sees this and thinks, well, Christians are just lazy. They're just good for nothing. So you see, they, they, from, it may just take one encounter like this. To say, well, the church is just full of lazy people. You know, I remember when, when I was a pastor and talking to somebody, inviting somebody to our church, I think. and He said, oh, I'm not coming to that church. It's full of hypocrites. And I said, well, you obviously don't know our church very well. We're not even half full. I said, I mean, we got room for a bunch more hypocrites than are coming right now. So we got room for you. Just, you know, come sometime. Um, Funny, that conversation didn't end well. But um, anyway, this reminds us that our work is the gift of God, and our, with our work comes gospel opportunities. See, in many places, like, like here, religion is seen as something like a, a relic of the past. It's seen as something marginally useful at best, pretty much irrelevant to daily life. But when you show up to your work in your bank or your school, your engineering firm, wherever you are working, and you do your work with diligence and joy and integrity, that gets people's attention. I remember, again, I was a pastor probably because I couldn't talk any hypocrites into coming. I got a part-time job to support our family. And I remember one guy walking by, he said, you know, you're just always busy. I thought, well, yeah, <laughs> I'm getting paid by the hour. That's what you do, you know. I didn't, hadn't even thought about it and had, had no idea he had observed it, but he noticed. And we eventually had an opportunity for a gospel conversation. Um, so all I'm saying is your work comes with some kinds of gospel opportunities. Just be aware of that. Do your work well, and that draws attention. You you just deflect all that attention to the Lord. When they ask you why, you say, this is because this is what Jesus wants of me. And that'll probably be a really awkward moment. But you get past the awkwardness and you can have a good conversation. Howard Hendricks tells a story of being on an airplane flight. Um, and this, Howard Hendricks is with the Lord now, so this happened many, many years ago. But he saw the flight attendant dealing with a particularly difficult passenger. Just, just really annoying, obnoxious. And this flight attendant was just very patient kind, gentle, to the point that when she was not doing anything else, Hendricks approached her and just said, I just want to commend you. I said, I, can, I know this passenger is really difficult. You're doing a fabulous job. If you'll tell me the name of your supervisor, I will write them a letter, which tells you when this happened before email anything else. And she said, oh, I don't work for the airline. He said, what? She said, I work for Jesus. And, you know, that just really got his attention, Right. That's what I'm talking about. You do your work, ask for the Lord. It may lead to to gospel conversations. But another thing that happens when we do this 
is self-sufficiency. That is, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I don't mean independence from God. I mean, because you love others, you do your work so that you're not dependent in an unhealthy way on other people for things you can do for yourself. So then, you're able to help others when they have needs. The people that you would have been getting help from, they are also free to help others. So it's just a good, it's just a good work ethic because this frees you to show love to others by meeting needs. And that is important. Being able to help others is important because there are times, even within our fellowship, when people, for whatever reason or another, find themselves in crisis and they need help. And if that is you, let us know, okay? It's legitimate for the family of God to help one another in times of need. So if that's you, let us know. If you want to contribute to a general fund, we can make that happen, okay? Um, we've got a fund. We, you know, elders deliberate over how to use it when requests come in. So um, let us know if there are needs. We want to help you through crises. We can't do long-term help, but we can help through the, the urgent crises. So just know that. I, uh, when I was a student, I, I was on the receiving end of this. I was just, just really... Uh, rarely had any financial margin. Was in just a. I was in a financial crisis and went to my church and they helped me. Okay, so see, I did it and I lived to be the specimen before you today. So you can. So enough said. Now, what if we could wrinkle time? Timothy could come visit ICP and report back to Paul on what he saw. What would he say about our love for one another? Well, I am certain that many of you show love to one another in ways that only the Lord and a few others know about. I've seen you guys. I've seen you step up in times of need, um, whether it's during COVID, during trying to help Ukraine refugees, opening your homes, being generous with offerings, collections, funds, projects to try to help. I've, I've seen you do that. I've seen you open your homes to broken and needy people. I've seen you be intentional to reach out to people who are different from you. And I find that encouraging and challenging. So what would Timothy say to Paul? Well, I think he'd say those folks at ICP are, are kind of quirky, especially the Americans. But they love one another. Yet we have not arrived. So even if you're loving well, excel still more. Maybe this is an area where you need to hear a challenge, maybe you need to, to work in the area of just meeting needs, being more aware, your attitude at work. I don't know. I'll trust the Lord to, to make the specific application to your heart. But when you go to work tomorrow, by going, by working, you are showing love to the family of God. Okay? Your work has value if for no other reason. Okay? Because by your working... You are providing for your own needs. You are freeing up. You are earning money that you can use to meet other people's needs. But also you are not putting yourself in an unhealthy dependence on others when you could be doing this yourself. I hope that it sounded kind of awkward. I hope it makes sense. Just know that when you go to work or school tomorrow, you're showing love to the family of God. Do what the Lord gives you to do. Do it with all your heart. Do it for his glory. Do as that as an expression of love and just see what the Lord does with it. Let me say, uh, there may be some of you who, um, who just say, yeah, I would, 
there was a time when I felt this kind of love for others, but I, my heart is just indifferent and cold. I don't love perfectly. None of us love perfectly. First, you're in the, you're in the right fight, okay? If you are fighting to love, that's a good fight. That means you're in the right fight and you're on the right side of the battle, okay? So first, just don't give up. But if you want to grow in your love, if you want to, to lose the indifference, to see your heart warmed again, go, it will not surprise you, go to the gospel. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus tells a parable about two debtors. And he says, you know, one had a small debt, one had a huge debt, but the, the creditor forgave them both. Which debtor do you think loved the creditor more? He's, and the, the Pharisee on the other end of the parable, the target, so to speak, he said, well, the one who was forgiven more. Jesus said, right. The one who has forgiven much loves much. And so what I would say to you is if your heart is cold, if you would desire to see the heart warm, to lose the indifference, if you begin to just reflect on forgiveness, reflect on the massive, massive sin debt that God has forgiven, I dare say you will find your heart warmed. You will you'll, you'll come out of this. It may take time, but reflect on his forgiveness. Reflect on his unfailing love because love responds to love. So you're not going to find it by looking within, trying to conjure up something. It's not there. Okay? You focus on Christ. He is love itself. He died and rose again to bring you forgiveness. So, because I, I know, I, listen, this is what I do. I mean, I go to Luke 7 and I remember, okay, remember forgiveness. I, this, I, this, these are the things he has forgiven me. And, and that, that helps my heart. I hope it will help you. You think about your sin. It's an easy in that state of heart to become overwhelmed with sin. That's not the point. You feel sin. You feel the weight of that. Go to the gospel, go to Christ, meditate on him, meditate, reflect on forgiveness, the beauty of it, and see what that does to your heart. And then finally, you may be here today and you feel that you are a complete stranger to the love of God. You feel maybe only his displeasure. You may feel like you are broken and you are ruined. Well, I have bad news and good news for you. Uh, bad news is you are broken and ruined. You are more broken and ruined than you know. The good news is you are more loved than you can imagine. And you can be reconciled to God this day, where you sit, in this room, wherever you're watching online, you can be reconciled to God today. Jesus Christ died and rose again to bring us forgiveness, freedom, life, as free gifts when we turn from our sin, put our hope in Him. And He will do that for you. He has done it for me. He has done it for many in this room. So go to Him. You may be a great sinner like David. Well, Jesus is a great Savior. So great sinners get great saviors. Don't, don't let the, the, what seems like a massive sin debt deter you. Go to Jesus. He will forgive. He will receive you. No one loves you like Jesus does. So if you want to know more about the love of Christ, please find, speak to one of us after the service today. We'll be glad to, to point you to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you.
for your for your love. Thank you that we have the opportunity today to gather together with one another to know the the length and breadth and height and depth of the love of Christ that, that surpasses knowledge. So I pray for my brothers and sisters here today. You'll help us to know how in the days to come you want us to show love. I pray you'll help us to grasp your love to a greater extent than we do today. And that would shape our desires, that would shape our actions, that would shape our attitudes, our words, our decisions, our habits, our ambitions, every area of our lives, please. We ask it. And as we go to our places of of work and business in the days to come, help us to do so as an expression of love, to find value in it for that, to honor you with that. And I pray there will be gospel conversations that happen because of that. We thank you and commit all of this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.